My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also come in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand here, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated against yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is this it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you, are really, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law and gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Carly, for reading that for us. Please keep the passage open in front of you. So if you've closed your Bibles, that's page... No, I haven't got it in front of me. One, two, one, three. There you go. There we are. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray, please, that you would help us. Father, it's hot and we can find it hard to concentrate, but we pray, please, that you would, by your Spirit, help us. Help us to focus on your Word, learn from it, and to think how we need to change as a result of your word and then help us to do it. Amen. Well, as I've just prayed, uh, I do recognize it is quite hot this morning. Uh, And therefore, if at any point you need to grab a glass of water, there there is a jug and there's water at the back. If you feel like you need to get up, move around, go and uh, get a glass of water, that's fine. Um, uh, Feel free to go for it. Um, To help you concentrate as well, on the back of the notice sheet, you've got the sermon points there, so you can follow through what I'm saying, and I hope that will be a help to you. Uh, it is a big help for us uh, that as we come to this passage in, the, in James, we're working our way through the book of James, as we come to the beginning of chapter 2, James very helpfully headlines for us what his big point is. And therefore, if in the heat of the morning, in the heat of battle, as we engage with God's word, if you drift, you know what the big point is because he says it right at the beginning. This is a big help for a preacher. So what's the big point? Chapter 2, verse 1, have a look at it. My brothers and sisters, 
believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. So there you go, there's the big point. Do not show favoritism. Now, you might wonder, why do we need the rest of the passage? Indeed, why do we need the rest of the sermon? It's a hot day, stop going on about it, Bart. But it is a hot day, uh, and therefore you might think, well, we've got our message, we go away, we need to put that into practice. Well, the answer is that merely having the command is not enough for us, is it? In fact, it's not enough for humanity. There have been um, big movements in recent years, haven't there, that we all would recognise in our culture, in the world, big movements to get rid of prejudice and favouritism. And it's been good that people have become more aware and have said we need to deal with the problem, we need to get rid of it. But the problem is, it's still there. We still find in our culture that we tend to favour some over others. That we still find we look down on those who are not like us. It turns out, while it's a noble sentiment to have a society in which there is no favouritism, it seems to be hardwired into us. It's there in the world around us. And the problem isn't the problem that James is highlighting here is that it very easily is within the church as well. And therefore, what we need is not merely someone to say to us, don't show favouritism. We need someone to help us to know how not to show favouritism. A bit like if you were to go to the doctor, it's not very good if the doctor just says, get better. Well, that's lovely sentiment and a lovely instruction, but actually you need the doctor to help you to know how to get better. So too with God's word. We read it, say, don't show favouritism. And then we need James to teach us how not to show favouritism, what change needs to happen in us. And therefore, as you follow through on the orders of service, as uh, you'll see on the screen, we're just going to go through what is it that James actually teaches? How's he going to change us? And the first thing that we're going to see is what's wrong with favouritism? What's wrong with favouritism? Well, now you might think, well, that's obvious. But why is it wrong? What is actually going on in our hearts if we show favouritism to others? Well, look at the example that James gives. Verse 2, he says, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. Well, you can imagine someone coming in. I don't know whether anyone did today, coming in wearing gold rings, fine clothes. Maybe in today's language that would be a man coming in wearing a, you know, a, a Savile Row suit that costs thousands of pounds. Or, or maybe... Someone coming in wearing trainers worth hundreds and hundreds of pounds. They come in and they've arrived in their expensive car parked right outside. And we didn't mind because that shows to the neighbours that we've got people who've got that kind of car coming to our church. So they come, they park out the front and they come in. But alongside them also someone else comes in. They come in wearing, well, verse 2 tells us a poor man comes in in filthy old clothes. And I don't think that needs any cultural trans translation, does it? We know what filthy old clothes are like. Well, someone comes in dressed like that as well. And James says, how are they treated? Verse 3, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
So there we are, they're treated completely differently. The wealthy person with fine clothes given, given a, a, the best seat. I don't know which the best seat is here, but they're given that seat. It's going to be one with arms, isn't it? Um, so if you're in one with arms, maybe you know you've got one of the best seats. But he's given that seat, and the poor person comes in, and I, I mean, could you imagine one of our uh, stewards, maybe one of our wardens or duty wardens, say, right, you know, you stand there. Or, or even, you sit at my feet. Imagine that happening. Well, you say, well, I, I don't think we're in danger of doing that. Well, that might be true. Maybe not. Though if you are on welcome duty, do pay attention to this. Just have a think. Actually, if you are on welcome duty, and these two kinds of people came in, would you treat them differently? Wouldn't you be tempted to? Yet, of course, uh, we don't... uh, uh, Yes, uh, yet, actually, we do often make decisions based on how someone looks, don't we? Often we do. We treat people differently based on their appearance. And the issue isn't just one of money. Clearly, James is picking this one up because actually the issue of money and wealth is a, is a present problem for these Christians. But of course, he's talking about favoritism, and it can be any kind of favoritism. He talks about it's really to do with just how you see people and how you're treating people based on how they look. So that could be people of different races, skin color, nationalities, different accents, different social class. And it may not be to do with how we seat people. That's probably not where this is, the, the rubber's going to hit the road for us, is it? But what about who we talk to before or after the service? We might well talk to people who are a bit like us. But what about those who are not like us? Well, we've still not answered what's wrong with that. What's wrong with favoritism? What's wrong with us uh, treating people differently based on what they look like? Well, verse 4 uncovers that for us. Just have a look at verse 4. This is the bit which digs into our hearts, doesn't it? And it's very uncomfortable. He says, Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So there's two things that he's saying there. And they're both on your sheets, actually. The first thing he says is, Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves? Now, that is, a, that is maybe not the best translation. The word used there is actually the same word used in chapter 1, verse 6. So would you just turn back to chapter 1, verse 6. So just back a page. Verse 6 of chapter 1 says, But when you ask, uh, you must believe. So he's he's talking to people who are suffering, going through trials, and he's saying uh, that you should pray, ask God for wisdom. says, verse 6, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. And the word not doubt there is the same one we've got here. And the word not doubt there is, it's a word for wavering. Being a a wavering person, a doubting person. It's this idea we've talked about the last couple of weeks of being double-minded. That is, saying you're a Christian, but actually being very influenced by the world around you. You've got this double-minded, wavering thing going on. And when he says, have you... So you're back to uh, over the page again. So chapter 2, verse 4. When he says, have you not discriminated among yourselves? He's saying, have you not wavered in yourselves? So he's saying, you're doing this. 
If you're treating people with favoritism, you are being this double-minded, wavering, doubting person who, though saying you're a Christian, actually are more influenced by the world than you would like to admit. He said, you're doing that. So I put on the sheet there. It shows a divided heart if we're, uh, if we're showing favoritism. And then he also says in verse 4, he says, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves? Have you not done this divided heart thing? And become judges with evil thoughts. Well, that's our problem, isn't it? When we're looking at others, we put ourselves as the judge. That is what we're really doing. We're setting ourselves up as the judges of humanity. And what's our criteria for judging humanity? It is what we see, what someone looks like. Deciding who is worth honouring and who is worth dishonouring based on what they look like. means we've set ourselves up as judges. So that is to get into our hearts. Now, we're all tempted to do this, aren't we? To look at people and treat them in this way. And actually, this is therefore uncovering each of our hearts to say this is our problem. Our problem is we're likely to want to put ourselves as the judge of humanity. So how does James correct his readers? First, he talks about how God views the poor. And then he talks about how God views those who are showing favoritism. So we need to change the way we think. And the first thing he says is, how does God view the poor? Well, it's on the sheet there. God chose the poor to be rich. We get that in verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? James is saying, look, look how different the world is from how God is. You're being, doing this wavering, double-minded thing, divided heart thing, of, of saying you're a Christian but taking the world's values. But just hear how God's view of the poor is so different from the world's view. He says, those who in the world's eyes are poor, this is saying God has chosen those who are poor to be rich. That is... Those who are poor, who love God, and it is those who love God. End of verse 5, it says, as he promised to those who love him. So it's those who are poor, who love God. God has said, those are the people God has chosen to be rich in faith. Richer with a wealth far greater than any wealth of this world. And to inherit a kingdom, a kingdom greater than any kingdom of this world. Now, it isn't that in the Bible, rich people, it's not that rich people can't become Christians. Uh, They can. There are clearly examples in the Bible of rich people becoming Christians. Take Zacchaeus would be one example, if you know of him, a very rich person who does become a Christian. So it isn't impossible for God to convert the rich. But it does seem that God's way is often to choose the poor, the rejects, those the world uh, casts off. And if that is how God views the poor who love him, who are you and me to dishonour them? Verse 6, 
he says, but you have dishonoured the poor. The poorest, smelliest outcast may in reality be more wealthy than Elon Musk if they love God. And this is consistent, isn't it, with how God treats people in the Bible. Maybe your mind, if you know your Bible, your mind goes back to the Old Testament. uh, And when David was chosen to be king of Israel, do you remember how that happened? Samuel, uh, the prophet Samuel, was sent to go and anoint a king. And God told him to go to the family of Jesse of Bethlehem, to go to that family and anoint one of them as king, one of his sons as king, Jesse's sons. Well, when he met the family, he first saw Jesse's son Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Presumably, this guy Eliab was tall, he was strong, he looked regal somehow. But the Lord said, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Listen to what God says. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, he went through seven of Jesse's sons. said, no, not that one, not that one, not that one. And asked, is that it? Is that all you've got? Well, he said, there's the youngest who's out tending the sheep. Yes, that's the one. Get him. He's the one who's going to be king, David. God's way is to choose the least and the last. So here is the motivation for us, not showing favoritism. The world looks at appearances, but view people the way God does. Let him be the judge, not you. Though someone may seem a nobody in the world's eyes, they may be one God has chosen to give infinite riches and therefore in reality be far greater than those this world reveres. What difference should that make to our gatherings? Well, we need to view one another and any who might visit us without favouritism. We're back to the main point. Don't show favouritism. Not judging by appearances. Now, James also does say, uh, change the way uh, you, should, you view the rich. He instructs those, uh, those Christians in the church uh, to be wise about how they view the rich. Uh, uh, those who are rich, he is saying, are the ones who are taking them to court. So it seems like there are lawsuits going on, and it's rich people who are taking Christians to court. Uh, and they are the ones, verse 7, who are blaspheming the, the, the noble name of him to whom you belong. So they are also the ones there blaspheming Jesus. Now, we're not going to spend a huge amount of time on that, but just notice there that in their situation, that is what's going on. And therefore, James is saying it's ridiculous, actually, to honour the rich just because they're rich. Uh, the logic doesn't seem to hold. Uh, There there may be something for us to learn here, that it is wise to see uh, that it may well be those who in the world's eyes are the ones to give preferential treatment to. They may be the ones who who may well be those who hate Christians and hate our Lord. And therefore, don't be seduced by the world's way of thinking about the rich either. So, though favouritism means making ourselves judges over others, uh, actually it shows we are wavering in heart. 
we are being we're being judges of humanity. James says for us to view people that in the light of how God views them. God chooses the poor. And then James turns to how God views us, how God views those who are actually sort of doing the judging, doing the favoritism. And this again is very uncomfortable. Here's your point uh, up on the screen. You aren't the judge, but the judged. You aren't the judge, but the judged. Verses 8 to 13, just so you see it there, verses 8 to 13 form a unit of, uh, of argument uh, for which verse 12 is, is sort of the application. So again, here's a sort of summary of, of, of what you're to do, uh, summary of verses 8 to 13. Have a look at it. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. He says, far from being judges, live and act as those who are going to be judged. Imagine the courtroom scene. Uh, imagine someone in the courtroom declaring a verdict. A verdict on everyone else in the courtroom, saying what they think about this person, that person, the other. And of course you find out after not very long, that is not the judge, that is the defendant. And the judge is on his way. Well, so too for us. You and I in the courtroom are not the judges. We are the ones who are going to be judged, and we should live in the light of that. Now, let's just follow through James's argument fairly quickly as we go through verse, from verse 8. See what he says. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. So he refers back to the Old Testament law, love your neighbor as yourself, and he calls out the royal law. Why is that the royal law? Well, it's probably because Jesus, in Jesus' teaching, when he was asked to summarize the law, to say which is the greatest commandment, he said two, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second one, this one, love your neighbor as yourself. And that might well be why he calls it the royal law. And he says to these Christians, do the royal law and you're doing what is right. But, verse 9, he says, but if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Clearly, he's saying, by showing favoritism, you are disobeying the law, the Old Testament law. You can't claim to be loving your neighbor as yourself if you're telling a poor person to come and sit at your feet. And his argument is that if you break one law, you'll see, he says there, if you break one law, you break them all. So verses 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he, he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit mur adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. So James is saying that the law is like a pane of glass. Uh, you, you break it, even a little bit of it, you've broken it. So too with the law. You break one of them, you've broken them all. It may seem insignificant to show favoritism. It may seem insignificant that as someone comes in, you show one person preferential treatment and, and then another tell them to sit by you. It may seem insignificant, but he's saying, actually, by doing that, you have broken the whole law. And then he issues, uh, and then he says, verse 12, here's our summary that we said, so speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by this law of uh, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And then he issues the warning, verse 13, and it's a strong warning, isn't it? Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. That is a scary warning, and it's meant to be. And of course, uh, that is what Jesus taught as well. Jesus, James's brother, taught exactly this. He told the parable of the unmerciful servant. We preached on this uh, fairly recently. Uh, a story about an unmerciful servant who himself had a huge debt that was wiped out. But then when someone owed him a much smaller amount of money, he would not wipe out the debt. He was unmerciful and therefore faced judgment. Judgment without mercy. And so James is teaching just along the same lines as Jesus. Jesus said it about forgiving others. James is saying it about favoritism. In both cases, a person is effectively putting themselves on the judge's seat and being unmerciful. And the Bible is warning us, if we do that, it is breaking God's law and it is to face God's judgment. Now, you might want to ask, how does that fit with the biblical teaching, the biblical truth that we are saved through faith alone? That all we need is faith in Jesus and we are forgiven. Put your trust in him and you need not fear judgment day. Is this teaching something that is different? That you also need to be merciful? Well, if that is what you're thinking, if that happens to be where you were going, what you were thinking, be encouraged, because that is what James then goes on to talk about. It's always encouraging if you're reading the Bible and you come across a question or an issue as you're going through a book of the Bible, a letter in the Bible, and it raises an issue and you're thinking, ah, yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. That's the question I was asking. That shows you're following the line of uh, what the author is, uh, is writing about and the line of his argument. Because James goes straight on, you see it in the heading, we won't go into it, but we will next week, where the next heading is faith and deeds. And that is saying, how do the two go together? And so we will deal with that more next week. But for the moment, a brief explanation is that genuine faith in Jesus will inevitably produce certain things in a person's life. John Calvin, the reformer, said, uh, a quote of his is, we are saved by faith alone... But faith that saves is never alone. Let me say it again. We are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. That is, uh, there are certain things that come with faith that are always produced by faith. All you need to have to be saved is, saving, is faith in Jesus. And that faith always brings, like a, a train drawing a carriage, it always brings certain things with it. Certain actions and characteristics. One of which is being merciful. Someone with faith in Jesus will be merciful. An unmerciful Christian is a contradiction. They're incompatible, being a Christian and, uh, and being unmerciful, like frozen steam or a, a sinking float. They just don't go together. Okay, don't think too hard on those ones. I know someone's going to come to me after and say, you can get... Anyway, they don't go together, Okay. Why not? Well, just consider why they are completely incompatible. Because to be unmerciful is to show favoritism, and that is to make ourselves the judge of humanity. 
But faith in Christ means recognising I am a sinner before God, before a holy God, that he is the judge, that I myself need mercy from God. And therefore, if that is my own understanding, I cannot sit in judgment over others. So it absolutely fits to say that we are saved by faith alone and that those who don't show mercy will be judged without mercy. It is a warning we need to hear. But we also need to finish the passage. And we're not quite there yet. We are almost done. But there are four words of hope that we need to see at the end of verse 13. Have a look at them. The last sentence. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now that is great news. Because that is saying that if this is you, if you and I recognise the favouritism in our hearts, that we are tempted to put ourselves as judge, if you feel convicted that this is your heart, and you come before God and ask for mercy, you take yourself off the judge's seat, and you recognise God is judge, and you come before him and say, I need your mercy, he will not inflict judgement on you. He will not inflict on you the judgment that you and I deserve. His mercy will triumph. The cross that we will celebrate when we take communion means that there is mercy for any who will turn to Jesus, recognising they're guilty sinners and asking for forgiveness. And knowing and experiencing that mercy is what will produce in us hearts that can live this out. That can live lives where we are not showing favouritism. It only happens as we recognise our tendency to sit on the judge's seat to see how God views those who are poor and to see we too are guilty and need his mercy. So, what do you need to change? It's what we thought last week. What do you and I need to change? Just take a moment and think that for yourself. What do you need to change? I'm going to give you a, moment, a few moments of quiet. to encourage you to keep thinking of that and to put it into practice and maybe over coffee after the service to ask one another what do we need to change what do you need to change as a result of what you've heard let me just lead us in prayer heavenly father we pray please that you would help us to see our own hearts in the light of this passage to see how we are tempted to waver uh, to be double-minded how we are tempted to put ourselves on the judge's seat Humble us, Father, we pray before you. Help us to come to you for mercy. And we praise you that mercy triumphs over judgment. We thank you we can celebrate that as we take communion. And so lift our hearts to you and help us to change in the light of the gospel. Amen.